Open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1. It wasn't planned this way, but what Zeb read to us today in our reading from the New Testament, uh, our text will be a portion of that. We've been looking at why it is so hard to believe in today's world. And we've seen that unbelief is, in fact, an important factor. And just One of the things that's difficult about preaching is I can't put footnotes or endnotes. And... Um, I'm more comfortable doing that. But I've mentioned this before. Os Guinness' latest book, uh, Fool's Talk, has been really very helpful in, in looking at this matter and, and other things as well. Uh, Guinness has been one of, the, one of the major influences in my life. In the, his book, in part, he deals with the, the anatomy of unbelief. That unbelief abuses the truth. It suppresses the truth. It exploits the truth. It inverts the truth. It turns things upside down, inside out. And when everything is said and done, the result is self-deception. In the process of looking at unbelief, we find ourselves looking into the heart of human darkness as the Bible presents it. Unbelief is merely one expression of the willful rebellion of humans against God. Which means, as I've said before, Please note that at this point, because of technical difficulties, about five minutes of Damon's sermon failed to get recorded. Let us resume. The assertion that deception and self-deception is fundamental and pervasive in human experience. That is to say, this is what scripture tells us, but this is what people today believe as well. A striking feature of the modern self and the postmodern self, if you wish, is in fact that there's a gap between the inner me and the outer me, the inner self and the outer self, between reality and appearance. In short, nothing is as it appears to be. This is what the Bible says, you know, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can understand it? And for the most part, I think people accept that. They do talk about transparency. They talk about authenticity, accountability, sincerity, as though these were easily attainable. I don't think that they are. Particularly sincerity. Sincerity can be dangerous when it takes the place of truth. If we believe that hypocrisy is a violation of the truth, then a lot of people are in trouble today because they don't believe in truth. So how can you be a hypocrite if in fact, how can one be a hypocrite if in fact you don't believe there is truth? If you're saying this is truth and you claim to believe it but you're not living, but you don't believe that there is truth in the first place. So we are all hypocrites in the modern world. Secondly, let's just talk about what hypocrisy is. On a gut level, on a street level, it is the gap between truth and lies. You say one thing, but you do something else. Between integrity and falsehood. Between justice and injustice. It's a pretense. It's a pretension. You're saying that something is real when in fact you live as though it is not. As Christians, we recognize that there is this gap. It is not always intentional, but it is very real. Because we are sinners. We are fallen. We say one thing and we in fact may act in a different way. But we need to recognize that there is a difference between claiming something to be true and it being the standard by which we are to live and the way that we actually live. 
So I said last week, in the same way that a parent throws out the bathwater but not the baby, or a woman wears a, pear, a pearl necklace around her neck but does not wear the oysters, so in the same way, we need to make a distinction between what is true, what we claim to be true, and in fact, oftentimes, what we find in our lives. The difference between credibility and plausibility. Credibility is a matter of whether or not a belief is or is not true. Plausibility is whether it seems to be true or it does not seem to be true. In this distinction, hypocrisy damages plausibility but not credibility because it either is or is not true. Hypocrisy does not affect that. It does, however, affect whether or not it seems to be true or whether it seems not to be true. It may be harder to believe what hypocrites claim to believe, but what hypocrites do claim to believe must be examined and not simply look at their lives and say, well, it can't possibly be true because look at how they are living. Os Guinness put it this way, if the Christian faith is true, it would still be true even if no one believed it, or if all who did believe it were hypocrites. And if it were false... It would still be false even if everyone believed it. And there's no apparent hypocrisy in their behavior. In a conversation with Tom and Dave after the service last week, we were talking about hypocrisy. And I think in, in many ways, in the day in which we live, hypocrisy has taken on a different meaning or emphasis. That is to say, rather than thinking or focusing on living in line with a standard, that is, you say, these are the things I should do or should not do, and the standard of Am I being a hypocrite? Am I saying one thing and living in another way? I think today the emphasis is on sincerity rather than on truth. And I suspect that many in the church have agreed that sincerity is the issue. And it is not the issue. This allows people to live the truth, to be acceptable, as long as one is sincere. His heart or her heart is in the right place. And whether or not what they believe is true or not, oftentimes is completely ignored. Our text today challenges that point of view, that sincerity is all that matters. As Ziv read to us, Paul is a prisoner, as he writes this letter, and there are repercussions from his imprisonment. Uh, listen, if you would, as I read, beginning in verse number 14. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Paul states here at the beginning that most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak more boldly because of his imprisonment. This is really quite strange because fear would have been the natural response. Paul is not awaiting a trial. He's awaiting the verdict. Paul is an apostle and a Roman citizen. So, from the kingdom of God... He is one of the top figures. He is a Roman citizen, which very few people had back then. And yet these have not protected him from being put on trial and now awaiting a verdict. 
The church had not yet begun to experience serious persecution, but if this can happen to Paul, it can happen to anyone. While the surrounding culture said, Caesar is Lord, Christians said, Jesus is Lord. Paul had been accused in Thessalonica of turning the world upside down. So when he is awaiting the verdict, he's a prisoner, one would think that people would stop preaching the gospel. But in fact, they continue. Motivated by goodwill, by love, knowing that he had been appointed for the defense of the gospel, these people are properly motivated. It may be, we don't know, but seeing that Paul had been limited because he is a prisoner, they have a sense that we need to take up the slack. We need to do what Paul is not able to do himself. And in fact, it may be some of the people he mentions in Romans chapter 16 when he talks about Mary, Trophina, Trophosa, and a dear friend, Persis. These understood that Paul was in chains for the defense of the gospel. Paul had his work to do. Now they have their work to do. But then there is another group, those who are motivated by envy, rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Who are these people? Paul doesn't tell us directly, but his vocabulary gives us hints. They are driven by rivalry and selfish ambition. By the way, in chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I think certain things are clear. These are not pagans. These are not unbelievers who have taken the name of Christ. They are not heretics who have left the gospel or the true faith and now are trying to spread heresy. And they are not Judaizers, those who have come, uh, like to Galatia, who have said to the Gentiles, yeah, it's a good thing you believe in Jesus, but you're lacking something else. These, in fact, fact, are Christians who are preaching the gospel, but they have no love for Paul. They intend to make his imprisonment as painful or as punishing as possible. They are anxious to see him remain in prison. And they derive a certain malicious satisfaction from making his situation worse. The King James has, they add affliction. They're trying to add affliction to his situation. They want to rub it in. So again, who are these people and who would think this way? Well, we're not told specifically. And, and, and perhaps at this point it's not necessary for us to know the details. What I find fascinating is that Paul is happy that the gospel is being preached. He rejoices that the gospel is being preached. Why? I mean, these people are doing it for all the wrong reasons. Why is Paul rejoicing? Well, first of all, they are in fact preaching the true gospel. They're not preaching another gospel like Paul talks about in Galatians 1. They are preaching to unbelievers That is, they're not trying to convert the converted. They're not trying to proselytize. But most importantly, the third reason that Paul rejoices is because he is dealing with the content of their message and not their motives or their motivation. Their motives, I think, he would condemn in the strongest terms. So he says that you're not to do anything out of selfish ambition. But the reality is that the gospel is being preached and people are hearing the message 
And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation in spite of our weakness, our ignorance, our sinfulness, and even our bad, half-hearted presentation of the truth. The gospel is still the truth and it is powerful and saving. God can work in spite of our brokenness. The reason that I bring this up is because sincerity is not the deciding issue. The content of the gospel is. So where we today, with the culture, might say, well, their heart's in the right place. You know, they don't believe the right thing, but their heart's in the right place. Paul would say quite the reverse. He would say they believe the right thing. Their heart's not in the right place. They're not really sincere, but they believe the right thing. And I must tell you, it just sounds counterintuitive. It seems foreign to us today because we have bought into the lie that sincerity is the primary thing that we should be concerned about. And so today, I think most people, when they talk about hypocrisy, what they're talking about more is sincerity rather than they are talking about meeting a certain standard. In fact, in my conversation again after the service with Tom and Dave, I think that hypocrisy isn't something that is mentioned as often today as it was in the past because sincerity has become the deciding issue. And by the way, if sincerity is the deciding issue, truth is not, and so people can believe whatever they want. They can do whatever they want as long as they're being sincere. And our text would tell us, absolutely not. If Paul, who is awaiting the verdict that ultimately will lead to his death, if he can rejoice when people are preaching to make his life miserable, they're doing it out of envy and selfish ambition, if he can rejoice because the truth is being preached, that should tell us something. Now, let's get back to old-fashioned hypocrisy, if you wish. I talked about this last week. We should recognize that socially and for the church, there are benefits to good old-fashioned hypocrisy. As strange as it may sound to those of us who take the truth seriously. But see, hypocrisy says there is a standard and it cares enough about that standard to want to pretend to be virtuous. We know that this is how I'm supposed to live. And hypocrisy is... I'm not quite there, but I'm, I want to pretend as though I am. One person wrote, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. Or another, there is virtually no deed inspired by charity for the sake of pleasing God. In other words, you're doing something for others because you want to please God that self-love could not perform for the sake of pleasing men. This is the hypocrite's announcing with trumpets as they drop their offerings into the chest at the temple. There is something to be said about hypocrisy. Because if, in fact, people accuse us of being hypocrites because we fail to practice what we preach, then it seems to indicate that they know that there is something we are preaching, that there is a standard of truth that we hold to by which our actions can be judged as being hypocritical. We are followers of Jesus. They know enough about Jesus to know that we are not living the way that Jesus taught. But again, as I mentioned last week, there is another danger in the time in which we live, and that is that many people do not know about Jesus, but they know about Christians. 
And so what they take to be the way of Jesus is in fact the way of Christians and oftentimes it is not what we find in Scripture. We find throughout history people have rejected the Gospel either from outside or some have been in the church and have left the church because of the unfaithful and corrupt practices and expressions of faith. There are benefits to hypocrisy, but let's be clear, hypocrisy is always wrong. But I think it reveals far more than we ever imagined. And we should remember where the original critique of hypocrisy or the seriousness of hypocrisy came from comes from God. In the modern world, you have the inner, the real, the unseen. These are seen as sort of irrelevant. It is your image, who you are. And that's why people are always sort of reinventing themselves because who you are inside doesn't matter. It's who you are outside. Well, God tells us that it is not that way. God does not see as humans see. The Lord does not look on the things as man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I mentioned last Sunday that the proper response for us as Christians to hypocrisy is confession. We should not say, we're all hypocrites, we just happen to be Christian hypocrites. No, we are to confess. Confession is important for a number of reasons. It's a part of our worship, by the way. The prayer of confession, it is a part of worship. We acknowledge that we are sinners. It involves a recognition of guilt that we have acted contrary to a given standard, a law, or a covenant. That is to say, God says, this is how you're supposed to live. These are the things you're supposed to do. These are the things you're, supposed, you're not supposed to do. And confession is saying, I have done the things I, I have not done the things I should do, and I have done the things I should not do. There's a fundamental difference, by the way, there should be, between the church and the surrounding culture. Because the culture today, I think, does not deal with the issue of guilt. It deals with shame. Um, And so, in many ways, in the culture today, people don't deal with guilt, real guilt. They deal with guilt feelings. That people feel guilty, but oftentimes they haven't actually done anything wrong. Um... They may have committed a, a, a social error. Uh, they have may have worn mit, mit, uh, what I want to say mismatched clothes. They may have parted their hair on the wrong side. They may have done something that makes them look foolish. But that's that's not a moral issue. That's not something that needs to be confessed. The whole celebrity culture and with social media um, guilt. I think it's not an issue as much as it is shame. Confession is about guilt and not shame. It's just my opinion, but I'm convinced that God cannot forgive shame. He forgives guilt. Because oftentimes what we call shame, we've not actually done anything wrong. We just failed to live up to perhaps other people's standards, but we haven't actually broken God's law. And yet in many ways we feel more deeply about Shame, oftentimes, than we do true guilt. Confession is important because the surrounding culture does not recognize it. In many ways, it sees it as a matter of weakness. 
that in fact what you've done is you've stonewalled, you've stonewalled, you've stonewalled, and finally you can't anymore, so you finally confess, I did it. And people are like, well, yeah. And so confession isn't really taken seriously. It's like, well, it's the last thing you could do because you've been caught in what you were doing wrong. Confession is a key part of the Christian faith, and it is vital to combating and fighting hypocrisy. It is an expression of moral courage. We may not take it that way when we do the prayer of confession together, but it says that we have the strength of character to testify against ourselves. If we're put on trial, we say, I have done this. I was not supposed to do this and I did it. Or I was supposed to do this and I did not do that. And confession is acknowledging that we are sinners and we have failed to do as we should. As Christians, we are sinners and we are hypocrites. The church has been hypocritical and we must confess that and our sins. Guinness put it this way, We have pointed to the way of Jesus and through our behavior we have stood squarely in the path of anyone who might want to join in. We've said, this is the way to Jesus and then by our behavior we stand right in the way and people are like, well, I'm sorry, I, I want nothing like, I want nothing of that if in fact that's what the Christian faith is. Christian hypocrisy has kept many people from the faith but Christian hypocrisy has also driven many people from the faith and in many ways has made it difficult to believe the gospel in today's world. In a world that is fascinated by appearance and sincerity, we need to remember that God looks on the heart and the gospel is the good news and the truth is the truth and that is how we're supposed to live. Let's pray together. Father, there are so many things that pull us, that tempt us away from the truth. And indeed, you look on the heart, but our sincerity is not the primary reality. Your truth is. We live in a world in which people are always reinventing themselves. And oftentimes being born again is seen precisely in those terms. Help us to acknowledge that your truth is true. This is your world. We are those made in your image. And you have given us instructions. You have shown us how we are to live. But because of our sinfulness, because of our weakness, we fail daily to do that. May we be people who confess our sins. May we acknowledge that we are often hypocrites. Not out of sincerity or a lack of sincerity, but because we have failed to live up to your standards. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who did show us the standard, who lived it out. But in addition to that, he gave his life for us that his righteousness might be given to us. That in our weakness and in our hypocrisy, we have the gift of life from him.
Help us to take our guilt seriously. And perhaps our shame less so. That oftentimes our guilt feelings have a stronger hold on us than our true moral guilt before you. But above all, may we recognize that Christ has freed us from our sins. We are your people. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us for our sinfulness. And we thank you for your grace and your forgiveness. I thank you that you brought us together today on this rather warm day. Keep us safe through the next couple of days as it's hot. And for those that are fighting the fires, some have already lost their lives. Uh, watch over them and give them protection. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.